1: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. VTW group. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Good morning, Birdland. I'm Mark Brown. I've
2: been covering the Orioles for more than a decade on CamdenChat.com and hosting this show for 79 episodes and counting. It is now October the 16th, 2023. The postseason is moving on without the Orioles, and I'm still bummed about it. I would have been going to ALCS Game 1 if they had made it. But, you know, let's talk about the Orioles anyway. Over the next few episodes, I will be talking about one group of players on the roster at a time, outfield, infield, starting rotation, and bullpen. Today we're starting with the outfield. If you are curious why I picked that, it's because I just finished writing about Ryan McKenna for Camden Chat. That article will be posted on Monday morning, so the outfield is what is fresh on my mind. The Orioles, as has been their way in recent years and continuing into this year, were occasionally a little generous in considering who could count as an outfielder. Way back in the early days of the season, Taron Vavra made 13 outfield starts. They were actually the only games he started in the field this year. Ryan O'Hearn made 18 starts in the outfield. Obviously, he's much more of a first baseman designated hitter. 71 starts between those two spots. I don't feel like talking about the non-outfielders who played the outfield, so I'm not going to. We will talk a little bit about prospects Colton Cowser and Heston Kerstad at the end when discussing the future a little bit more. But the main purpose today is to think about who was actually here in the Orioles' outfield and how they did over the course of the season. The three guys who ended up playing the most in the Orioles' outfield this year were... The exact same three guys you could have predicted before the season. Austin Hayes made 134 starts in the outfield. Most of these, 125, came in left field. Cedric Mullins started 101 games in center field. He obviously would have been in line for more starts, if not for a couple of about three-week stints on the injured list with the same uh, right groin strain injury, or one that was then re-aggravated a little bit later. Anthony Santander, of course, was the third. He started 96 games in right field, one game in left field. He was also the most frequently used designated hitter by the Orioles, getting 47 starts at the DH spot in the lineup. And although really these are the three guys you could have predicted before the season, it was not a given that all three of them would start the most number of games at their spots. I think Hayes and Santander are both guys who've dealt with injury problems over the course of their career. And it was Mullins who ended up hitting the injured list twice. And uh, another reason I didn't really think it was necessarily a given if we were looking at it, let's say, last December, was because I thought uh, thought the season might end up playing out such that one of that trio of outfielders might possibly get traded. Or maybe that would even happen last offseason. But I think it was also possible if it had happened uh, for that to happen in July, if it was like the Orioles were just kind of a middling team. Let's say if they were on pace to finish about where the 2023 Yankees finished at 82 and 80, then it might have turned out like the 2022 deadline where one of those guys ended up getting shipped away for uh, future pitching help. That's especially if Colton Kowser had been amazing in the minors, which he was, and then that ne- the Orioles needed to open up room for him in a season that was not uh, going as amazingly as this one was. Of course, the way the Orioles' season did play out, that kind of 2022 move would have been absolutely indefensible. But really, there's honestly no reason to believe the Orioles were spending a whole lot of time considering that over the course of the month of July. While they did hit a rough patch that started in late June, they lost six of seven games through July the 4th. I think if that had continued, they might have had tougher decisions to make about whether to uh, continue to forge on with the current roster or whether to do some tweaking. But it didn't continue. Like so many times over the course of the 2023 season, they righted the ship awesomely. And after that stretch of losing six of seven they went on and won eight straight games and peeled back five games of the AL East deficit. So there were no trades uh, trading away of players made. Okay, so Austin Hayes. If we use the park and league adjusted plus stats, that is OPS plus or WRC plus, weighted runs created plus, this was the best hitting season of Austin Hayes' career. He had the exact same OPS 769 this year as he did two years ago, But it's more impressive that he did it this year now that he has half of his games are in front of Waldemore at home, and the league environment of offense has shifted slightly as well. So Hayes ended up being in the 12 to 14% above league average batter range. That was fueled mostly by his 853 OPS in the first half that ended up getting him an all-star bid. Of course, Hayes, he did earn the all-star bid, but his performance was really bad in the second half of the season, an absolutely awful month of July, not very good month of September. Uh, over the full season, that was 2.6 bwar war wins above replacement, 2.2 fwar war fan graphs, wins above replacement. Neither of these is actually a career best. His defense uh, slipped according to these metrics compared to that 2021 season when he hit about the same. So, you know, it's tough to tease out how much Hayes is suffering in these metrics from the now cavernous left field at Camden Yards. All of the public defensive metrics do agree, however, that Hayes has a good arm. So at least he's got that going for him. The near future for Hayes looks like this. He has two years remaining of Orioles team control before he becomes a free agent. The 2024 season will be the second taste of arbitration for Austin Hayes. The uh, website MLBTradeRumors.com, every year they do an arbitration projections post. They're not perfect, but they're pretty good at getting in the ballpark for everybody. And that website for this, uh, this year's predictions thinks that Hayes will go from a $3.2 million salary in 2023 to $6.1 million next year. Obviously, that is a bargain for a player with Hayes's recent production, although you could look at him and see possibly a regression candidate for a variety of reasons. One of these is that he uh, has an abnormally high 345 batting average on balls in play this season compared to a 307 career BABIP. And also his ex-WOBA, that is expected WOBA, which itself is weighted on base average. You can find that one mostly on uh, Fangraphs, also on the StatCast was 20 points below his actual WOBA. So that's possibly a sign he's going to regress. And also, he still has the potential to get injured. And so, you know, don't automatically assume he's going to be just as good or better next year. But I think Hayes should be the Orioles' opening day left fielder. And, you know, if they have to revisit whether he's quote-unquote worth it before 2025 based on how he performs or how healthy he is... Next year, that's a problem for this time next year. Cedric Mullins, much like with Hayes, his season OPS actually equaled a recent number. His 721 OPS was identical last year and this year. However, going from 2022 to 2023, that actually means his uh, league adjusted OPS plus declined from 107 to 101. So he was 1% better than the average player. And using the WRC plus number, which has um, slightly more involved formula, he was actually 1% below league average at 99. And that's because Mullins was pretty bad at the plate in three of the season's six months, including both August and September. And unfortunately, as we know, this carried over into the 0 for 12 over the course of the ALDS sweep at the hands of the Rangers. So for Mullins, all of that added up to 2.8 bwar, but only 1.8 fwar. These are good enough numbers, but they are disappointing compared to Mullins having nearly six war by both of those metrics two years ago. So for anybody who came out of the 2021 season thinking that okay Mullins is going to do that for the next four years, you know you you've definitely been let down. I did not expect that. I was hoping he would maybe be able to, for several years, duplicate last year where he was, if you round up, with to about a four-win player. And unfortunately, he was not able to continue on that track either. So next year is going to be the age 29 season for Mullins. Like Hayes, he has two seasons remaining until he can become a free agent. He is projected by MLB Trade Rumors to get a raise from $4.1 million to $6.4 million. Again, that is a bargain for a two to three win player. I think you can look at his season numbers and think he is due for improvement in his luck. He only had a 271 Babip this year versus career 296. So he could be getting some better luck, but he could also be due for further regression as he had a 311 Woba this year, which is already not great, but the expected Woba was only 288. I think, for my part, the problem for Mullins is he put the ball in the air way too much for a guy who is going to get along with his speed. 49% of the balls he put in play were classified as fly balls. That was up from about 43% the previous year, and that came at the expense of ground balls and line drives. And additionally, his sprint speed dropped from the 80th percentile in the league to 68th percentile. So you could say, okay... Was the groin bothering him even when he was not on the injured list, or is that a guy who's just slowing down a bit as he heads towards age thirty? I don't know the answer to that. The Orioles probably will do some thinking about it. Uh, I don't I don't think they are ready or should be ready to move on from Mullins here, but it again, like Hayes, it's going to be worth keeping an eye on if Mullins is worse still in the twenty twenty four season then it's not a guarantee, I don't think, that they will want to bring him back for that final uh, year of service time in 2025. So we're going to take a quick hit into the mailbag because I received a question from listener Zach while the postseason was still going on with the Orioles in it, and the answer to that question involves uh, Cedric Mullins prominently. So let's just go ahead and slip that in now. Zach wrote to me ahead of ALDS Game 3, He said about the podcast, love the cautiously optimistic takes being a wary fan myself. Zach, thank you for the kind words and for the message. Zach wrote in to ask, what are my top three or top five favorite Orioles games this year? Zach also wrote optimistically that he was not saying the season was in fact over yet, although it did turn out to be a few hours after Zach sent the message. Zach, sorry for that. You know, we're all sorry about it. I'm going to go ahead and give you the top three. My number one game is the Cedric Mullins game, August the 13th in Seattle versus versus the Mariners. I still cannot believe it happened. Mullins, he was not even in the starting lineup, entered the game late, robbed a home run, saved the game in the bottom of the ninth. Then nonetheless, the next batter gave up the, uh, hit the tying dinger off of Mike Bauman. And Mullins just went ahead and hit a two run home run in the 10th inning to put the Orioles back on top before Shintaro Fujinami, the otherwise wild man, who of course was so wild he got left off, the postseason roster closed out a fantastic win. Still, to this day, remains unbelievable. More than two months later, still. Number two for me, the Orioles, after uh, losing the first two games of their series to the Rays in September, coming back and getting a dominant 8 nothing win on September the 16th to seal the head-to-head tiebreaker over the Rays, if needed for the season, which it turned out to not be. Grayson Rodriguez had eight shutout innings in that game. I wish we saw that guy in the postseason. It was a fun game. Number three for me, June the 24th, also against the Mariners, this time at home, A seven innings, three earned run game by Dean Kramer was kind of spoiled by Felix Bautista giving up a game-tying ninth inning home run. That was his fifth blown save at that time of the season. But the Orioles went on to get a walk-off in the 10th inning, courtesy of Ryan McKenna. I'm not saying we're even for the second game of the year miscue based on McKenna getting that walk-off win, but it certainly helped. So that is my top three. Zach, thank you again for writing in. Anyone else, if you have a question or a topic for a future episode, you can email camdencastpod at gmail.com. I will be right back after a message from a Fans First Sports Network sponsor.
1: That's chumbacasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: All right. So Anthony Santander tied for the team lead in home runs this year at 28. I do think in a small way, that is a problem for the Orioles because 28 is not really that impressive of a home run number for, you know, the best guy on your team. Uh, the Orioles, they just didn't have a big elite hitter of any kind on the roster, I don't think that's why they lost in the division series, but I do think maybe it was part of the factor. But, you know, they won 101 freaking games this year. So I try to not nitpick too much. But here we are as we start to turn our focus towards next year. And I think the Orioles are going to need to improve the roster if they're going to win, not even repeat 101, but if they're going to win like 94 or more wins, I think they're going to need to improve the roster to do that. So. Santander, his 797 OPS this season was third best among full time players on the team uh, behind Gunnar Henderson and Adley Rutschman. It was actually the best season of Santander's career by both BWAR and FWAR. He had a 3.0 baseball reference war versus 2.1 last year, and in FWAR, identical 2.6 wins above replacement last year and this year. All three parts of his triple-slash batting line were career highs, a 257 average, 325 on base percentage, 472 slugging percentage. He stole five bases just for funsies. His defense, well, it rates poorly because he doesn't have the sprint speed to be out there in any outfield corner. Uh, 33rd percentile, that's 26.7 feet per second as measured by StatCast. He has been consistently about that slow for the last three seasons, so it's not an ongoing decline. It's just a guy who is not fast and was not fast continuing to not be fast. I do think a better constructed roster maybe has Santander mostly as a first baseman or designated hitter, but again, the Orioles, they won 101 games with what was certainly not a perfectly constructed roster, but That was about as close to a perfect regular season in terms of the results in the win-loss columns uh, as you can possibly get. Unlike the others we've previously discussed, Santander only has next year left before he hits free agency. He is projected by the MLB Trade Rumors uh, algorithm to get an arbitration bump from $7.4 million this year up to $12.7 million next year, He, too, is worth it. The Orioles can absolutely afford to pay him $12.7 million. And depending on how the 24 season goes for Santander, he might even be a fringe qualifying offer candidate where they would offer him uh, a contract of, it'll probably be something like $19 million, let's say, for 2025. And if Santander goes on to decline that and then signs elsewhere, that would potentially get the Orioles uh, a draft pick in the 2025 draft. So there you go. That's a bit farther down the road. Um, Like Mullins, Santander is heading to his age 29 season next year. His birthday is actually later this week. Does that make him a guy they should trade? Um, You know, if the Orioles are somehow really, really confident about Colton Kowser, despite not playing all that well in his limited big league sample, or if they're really confident about Heston Kerstad based on his small big league sample, maybe, yes, that would make Santander a trade candidate. I really, I hope they don't, though. I just, um, I don't know. I I don't want the Orioles to just automatically keep bringing back everybody forever, but I don't think they need to go out of their way to subtract uh, from the roster by trading people away, especially out of the outfield. So those are our three main starters. We can also talk a little bit about the backups of course, the number one surprise was Aaron Hicks, this year's winner of the guy I made the most freezing cold take about in my defense after Hicks was bad for three straight years with the Yankees, including a 188 batting average, 263 on base, 261 slugging percentage this season with the Yankees. Why should I have expected an age 33 revival? I should not have. Neither should you. Neither should the Orioles, for that matter. But uh, they brought him here, and that's exactly what happened. Sometimes guys really are change of scenery guys. Signed the day that the Orioles placed Mullins on the injured list, Hicks did, in fact, radically improve with the Orioles. Over 65 games for the remainder of the season, he batted 275 with a 381 on base percentage, 425 slugging percentage. Adds up to an 806 OPS, which would be, uh, if he was a full time player, that would leave him third, again behind. Henderson, and Rutschman. Not too shabby. And indeed, you know, considering that is a fourth outfielder, essentially, that's pretty darn good stuff there. I think almost certainly not coming back for next year, although it does make me wonder if the Orioles will now start looking for some kind of veteran fourth outfielder rather than go into another season where they just pencil in McKenna ryan mckenna or some other young player in the fourth outfielder role uh, i did i liked hicks's hitting but for me it was hard watching him try to chase down some fly balls uh, in line drives especially after he had gone on the injured list a couple of times and that brings us to mckenna his season of course began with the game two missed catch flub and it ended with mckenna not even on the postseason roster. He was optioned four separate times during the course of the season, and that ended up meaning that he missed both of the clinch parties. That is a bummer for him. This was actually the best-hitting season of Ryan McKenna's three big league seasons to date. At a 91 OPS plus, he was quote-unquote only 9% below league average. That's actually not too bad for a fourth-outfield kind of player, but again, it seems to me I, the writing is on the wall. I just... As I mentioned with Hicks there, it seems like maybe the Orioles are now going to want a veteran player with more of a track record in that role rather than just McKenna, who happened to be the roster's most natural fourth outfielder when they were 52 and 110 in 2021. Expectations are higher for the team now. That squeezed out McKenna over the course of this season, and he will be out of minor league options in 2024, so he cannot be freely sent down to Norfolk as he was over the course of this year. I do wonder if that might squeeze him off the 40-man roster entirely. So the question for next year, I think the biggest question is, how are the Orioles going to fit in the outfield prospects who debuted in 2023? Kowser, of course, had a poor first impression. Heston Kerstad, the silent J, was fine, but not so overwhelming to think that he's going to have to shuffle someone aside. There are a couple of other prospects who were so overwhelmingly good, we might think about that, but... We can talk about them a little bit later. That's more of an infield thing. Mike Elias said recently that uh, figuring out what to do about his prospects is something he thinks about every day of his life. And I guess that makes two of us because I'm pretty much also every day thinking about what are the Orioles going to do about their prospects heading into next year. I don't know what Elias will end up doing. It does feel like somebody has got to be traded. Then again. I thought that this time last year as well. And nobody was not only over the offseason out of the outfield, but also during the regular season as well. So that's all that I've got for today about the outfielders. If you have enjoyed this show, please subscribe where you get your podcasts and tell somebody you know about the show. For the offseason, new episodes will be weekly on Mondays, so I will be back with you October 23rd to discuss either infielders or the starting rotation, depending on which I feel like more when I go to record on Sunday. Good Morning Birdland is a Camden Cast production on the Fans First Sports Network. This is Mark Brown signing off.